0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. On this week's Science for the People, we're discussing the ethics around medicine, research, and human life. Later on, we'll explore the recent human embryo modification experiments. But first, let's take a look at Alberta's eugenics history. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined by Claudia Malacrida, a professor in sociology at the University of Lethbridge, specializing in sociology of the body, gender, and disability studies. She's also the author of A Special Hell, Institutional Life in Alberta's Eugenic Years. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, Tell us about the creation of Michener Centre.
1: The building uh, that Michener is housed in was originally set up uh, as a private school for girls, and it didn't do very well financially and kind of turned hands pretty quickly into um, a recovery center for shell-shocked soldiers coming back from World War One. And when that need ended, uh, there was a sort of a discussion about what to do with it, and uh, at the time... Uh, children who had mental health problems or intellectual disabilities uh, had no facility at all in the province. And so either they were at home or they were housed in an institution in Manitoba. So at the time uh, that Michener opened, there was some discussion about putting the center in Edmonton at a place called Oliver. Uh, this was the very beginning of mental health services in the province uh, and ultimately the decision got made that Oliver would be for people with mental health problems and Michener would be uh, a school uh, that would open and it was originally called um, the Provincial Training School that would open for children uh, hoping who were challenged to um, be included in the public system. So kids with identified learning disabilities and I mean this is today's language language of the time would have been kids who were identified as mentally defective.
0: And what year would that have been?
1: Um, Yeah, good question. It's 1923 was when it uh, first opened up. And uh, when it opened up, uh, it opened up with a total of 108 children. And the intention of the institution was that this would be a place of remedial learning. And I I should put this in the broader context of where, uh, as as it's called, the history of mental retardation was at the time. Uh, This was sort of a time of great optimism. Uh, there had been a number of cases in uh, Europe of uh, kids who had been sort of sensorily deprived. Who uh, the Wild Boy of Aveyron uh, was one, um, and he had been discovered as somebody who in the had been left in the woods for who knew how long, and he arrived uh, in sort of civilized circles without any social skills whatsoever. And there was this intensive effort on the part of um, of psychologists at the time to bring him back into humanness for whatever that, you know, might be defined as. And and there was some limited success. And this kind of translated into great optimism for people who had intellectual disabilities, that maybe there could be, through intensive care and love, a kind of cure for intellectual disabilities. So this gave rise to a kind of cottage system mostly in Europe, uh, England, and the northeastern United States, where the idea was in sort of pastoral settings, intensive interaction could help young people to develop, you know, social and intellectual skills, and they could be reintegrated into the community. And so Michener kind of follows on those heels, and, and, and much of its early years kind of looks like that, because it's a very pastoral setting. It's quiet, and the, the, the population is small. And there is this uh, original intention of, um, of education and reintegration. Although I have to say from the very beginning, the records really, um, struggle with this notion of education. There wasn't a lot of trained, uh, personnel in the, in the province, uh, in those early years. Nor was there for many, many, many years after. So a lot of the teaching that happened, uh, and I want to say that even by the institution's own admission, Uh, Less than 20% of of the residents ever received any kind of training uh, or education. Uh, But for those who did, um, it was really done um, by guess and by God and um, with untrained personnel who kind of came in with a good heart and tried to figure something out so that's sort of the, those are the, that's sort of a big picture sketch of the early years of the institution
0: so this wasn 't necessarily solely uh, children with physical or mental disabilities then uh,
1: well, you know psychology is often a loose science, so identifying uh, uh, you know who is disabled or who um, is mentally ill is something that even today we struggle with. And in those days, I mean, the categorizations of people as they came in uh were, uh, you know, they were imbeciles and morons and idiots. And those kinds of really gross categories were based on not really a lot of, fine science or, um, you know, or testing. I mean, uh, certainly in in Alberta, I mean, even in the 70s, one of the people who I spoke with who worked at Michener uh, as a registered, uh, as a, not as a registered psychologist, excuse me, as a psychologist, uh, described how he had graduated with a BA in 1971 and came to work at Michener and sort of in his first week of work administered his first ever whisk. Or intelligence test without any training at all, so who was who you know who was intellectually disabled is even at that level quite difficult to uh to ascertain but another another thing that I will say is um a lot of uh, we know from the record that there was a misrepresentation or an overrepresentation of a lot of sort of ethnic and immigrant groups so eastern uh europeans ukrainians italians greeks new immigrants uh the records break down the religious backgrounds of uh of inmates and overwhelmingly catholic or orthodox uh you know population in the institution um uh there I, this this i I can't actually speak to from my own research uh because I didn't see in the record where it was broken down that they were first nation or Métis, but there are others who have written to the effect that you know these these institutions um these these groups were overrepresented in the institutional population
0: and also people that were living in you know lower socio statuses, right At, you
1: know, lower socio economic status uh, for sure and that would be typical of immigrants and of Eastern Europeans in, in Alberta I've got to say in the early decades for sure but also I think there was a sort of a moral coding of some people so an overrepresentation of single parent families and certainly right up until the 80s that would have been a highly stigmatized kind of identity. Um, alcoholism what was called pauperism uh, and, and in the early years, pauperism was something that was presumed actually to have a sort of a heritable quality. Uh, They didn't use terms like genetic, but uh, there was a a strong argument that there was some polluting quality to these kinds of people, and containment would certainly be the right response to it,
0: which is basically passive eugenics
1: exactly yeah, and, and that is uh, so Michener operated in a in a way of passive eugenics and active eugenics, so passively i mean to sequester uh, Sections of the population and keep them away. And as I, as I alluded to earlier, I mean, Michener Centre or Provincial Training School was a very uh, isolated uh, facility. Uh, it sat outside of Red Deer, uh, you know, um, separated by a river from the city and on a hill and a wooded hill. And um, Red Deer itself was a very small town when it opened. I, I uh, don't actually have the numbers that at hand, but, you know, 20,000 people, and, and an hour and a half from the nearest town in either direction, or, you know, Calgary and Edmonton in either direction. So, you know, these were people who were not going to be getting out and about and uh, and having, having sex and making babies. And in the institution itself, from the very beginning, there was lockdown, uh, there was sexual segregation to ensure that there was no... Um, Pregnancies uh, occurring uh, within the population that said uh, there are regular reports in the eugenic record of of um, of sterilizations uh, and simultaneous abortions uh, so obviously there was sexual activity and I would say I would surmise although it's not um it's not confirmed in the record very frequently but sexual assault as well there were some cases that actually did uh, make their way uh to um to the public eye and to prosecution or dismissal but they were rare
0: You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking to Claudia Malacrida, author of A Special Hell, Institutional Life in Alberta's Eugenic Years. So maybe let's take a step back, because this is all awful. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yes, indeed. Why would would parents uh, allow their children to go to a facility Mm. like this?
1: Um, I think there are a number of reasons that a parent would do this. I mean, first and foremost, uh, for parents, there were no other options. It was either keep your child at home without any um, possibility of community inclusion. I mean, Alberta in the early years was a hugely rural province and people lived in isolation. Schools were not inclusive in any way, shape or form. I I, I, want to say, you were asking a little bit earlier about what kinds of people came into the institution. Uh, Amongst the people who I interviewed, there were a couple of women who had just contracted polio and spent a few years out of the school system due to illness and were not, um, accommodated on their return. The schools couldn't accept them because they were too old and there was no alternative for them. So, Michener seemed as though it was offering, um, the only answer for those families, which seems, you know, incredible in retrospect. So there was that. Uh, There was also uh, a huge belief uh, that such children, um, despite the optimism of the early 20th century where, you know, there was this thought that love and tenderness could cure such kids, it pretty quickly uh, became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. And um, we moved from the early 19th century to the, you know, in the sort of 30s and and forward uh, to a place where this we moved to a more of a warehousing model so these were you know these were kids who were not seen as reintegratable to great extent and um economic factors would have would have uh filled uh, parents decisions as well would have informed parents decisions as well um you know if you're trying to run a farm and it's the dirty 30s and you have no money and you're told by the family physician that this is the best option and and parents were told this their kids didn't have any place else to go um and the and the medical system and the psychological systems such as it was really uh, impressed on families that the service would be there and i've i've read the admission materials uh, that parents were provided with, and it's a very optimistically worded, and there's a, it's very compassionately worded. Once kids got in there, I think parents had a completely different experience and felt a lot of ambivalence. But to keep your child at home right up until the 70s was really seen as a kind of, and to have a child with a disability was seen as a very shameful thing. So well, what were these children's lives like in Michener? were unspeakable in 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 reality i mean um Kids uh, went in very young. Uh, some some children, I mean, really, uh, you know, extremely disabled children, I suppose, um, went in, you know, in their in 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 infancy or toddlerhood. But for most kids, I think the rubber really hit the road when they hit school age. And so uh, most kids, is, the admissions are sort of between seven and and fifteen. And uh, the people who I interviewed sort of described these almost cinematic experiences. You know, I was playing, uh, you know, in the front yard of our farmhouse and I looked up and I saw a big black car coming down the dusty road and, you know, we didn't get visitors very often and a man and a lady came out and knocked on the door and my mother came out with a suitcase and she was crying. And I got in the car and drove away and didn't understand what was happening to me. Parents who did accompany their children, uh, the same kind of uh, run up, but the description of the the moment, and I did interview a parent as well who had put her child in. Um, Basically, they were separated the moment that they arrived at the institution. Parents were put in one room to do paperwork to sign the child in. And, uh, the children were removed and, um, and an immediate depersonalization process began for those children. Uh, their clothing was removed, their possessions were taken and often never to return again. They were, uh, deloused and showered and, um, put into, uh, isolation for a week and then put into the general population. And the institution had a policy that um, on paper uh, indicated anywhere from one to six months uh, of non-contact with the family should occur. But from speaking with individuals, um, they, they described it as you had to wait for a year before you could see your family. So that, you know, the difference between official knowledge and, and experiential knowledge. And so kids didn't get the chance to see their families and their families didn't get a chance to see them. They were far, far away. And uh, in most cases, and uh, again, the institution really did discourage visits. Let's talk a bit more
0: about the staff. Uh, Michener actually became a training facility for mental Mm. deficiency nurses.
1: Indeed it did. Well, uh I think uh what's interesting about Michener Center is what a huge role it uh has played in the Alberta landscape and particularly for the Red Deer air, uh citizens uh in terms of an opportunity for great employment. Uh I mean it's a difficult it was a difficult place to work for sure. But it was also a unionized job with uh, reasonable working conditions in a in a landscape in which there were not that many other options, and uh, and it also offered uh, from it uh, from the the uh, 30s forward one of the few post secondary originally the only post secondary uh, training opportunity for people in the in the area. Uh, it it offered a post secondary degree in MDN nursing. Uh, before Red Deer College opened, so uh, so it provided some sort of opportunity. Now I've talked to some people who question whether or not the quality of that training was really of of much um, of much of a standard. But oh, nevertheless,
0: that wasn't a transferable certificate. The the staff could it was really not go no. work anywhere else once they had that. It was only suitable for prisoner.
1: No. That's right, although I will say that when michchener when Michener began to close and when the m d n program uh ceased its operations in the in the mid seventies um, there was a grandfathering in of uh of those people with that designation to become psychiatric nurses and, and so um so there was some some nominal rec- recognition but uh but the training from what i what I've heard people describe. Wasn't very extensive. So we have a situation
0: where people are being they are being brought in with very little qualifications. I understand that, uh, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. people had never even been in a facility like that, had never done yeah. any mental health training, and they were hired. They can't work anywhere else. Um, so, so what were the staff like?
1: You know, I, I honestly don't want to speculate on on what they were like. Well, I can. What did certain- residents say? Um, I don't think it was a place. Well, first of all, the residents did not speak kindly about staff in a general way. Um, There were moments of kindness. But when I asked people and I did try to because it's really easy to paint this with a black brush. Uh, but I so I wanted to uh, you know be balanced to some extent so when I spoke with people and I, I asked them if they had had a, a favorite staff member or if they had maintained any relationship with people once they'd left the institution and really none of them you know and, and these are people who lived you know the average age of uh, of internment for the people in my study was 12 and the average age of release was 30 so these were people who had spent like their formative years in the institution and yet felt no... Um no connection to those people with whom they'd worked for years because people, people started working at Michener and stayed there. It wasn't a, there was high turnover, um, I think in the unskilled ranks, but there were many people who had long and sustained careers there. And I will say that there were many incidents in the, there's a, the files included the special incident reports. There were many incidents of, of, um, extraordinary brutality. Um, that punctuated what was a daily life of ordinary brutality. So people were not treated with a lot of care. Uh, handling was rough. Uh, washrooms didn't have partitions in them and people were toileted collectively together. Uh, both workers and residents described morning showers in which the young people would be lined up naked in the hallway uh, to wait for staff to usher them in when they arrived on their shift to have their morning shower, which was done collectively, and uh, people wore rubber aprons and boots and hosed hosed people, hosed children down and adults down. Humiliation was. Uh, I think epidemic in the in the institution, uh, one um, staff member described one of the bathrooms uh, and having uh, having you know everybody go in and use the toilet collectively and the daily routine was like that it was like everybody was up. Everybody's bed was made. Everybody was fed at the same time. Everybody went to bed at the same time very early. You know, everybody pooped at the same time. Everybody showered at the same time. All of these sorts of. Hurting of people uh, in that way. Uh, anyway, she described the toilet as having the ultimate convenience for staff: uh, uh, a cord at the doorway so that the toilets could all be flushed at once to save staff the labor of going from one to the next. So you could all just sit there and you know be in each other's smell while you waited for the royal flush, as it were.
0: This is a horribly depressing interview. and we'll I'm sorry. Be, no, it's, uh, this is something we all need to hear. And we'll be back with more Science for the People and a special hell, institutional life in Alberta's eugenic years after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and my guest is Claudia Malacrida, author of A Special Hell, Institutional Life in Alberta's Eugenic Years. Okay, so I think we've established that everything at Michener was terrible. Um, but I really want to talk about the educational component uh, because one of the stated hmm. mandates for the institution was to provide education. Uh, so, what was education like there, starting with maybe the, the supposed academic education?
1: You mean for workers or for, oh, for children? For children. Um, well, <laughs> Uh, first of all, uh, the original idea uh, was that children would receive some sort of training, whether it would be academic or, you know, sort of regular curriculum education or vocational training, and be returned to community. But by 1960, well, gee, I'm going to, I don't have dates in front of me. I'm going to say 68, it was, it had reached such a point that they understood that they were not um returning kids to the community and the place was bulging at the seams. Um and so a second institution, Deer Home, was established, Kitty Corner from Provincial Training School for adults. So there was a a, so there was a large transfer of inmates at that time from the child children's side to the adult side. So that alone sort of stands as evidence of a failed you know reintegrative mandate, if you will. But um I as I alluded to earlier, I mean the first training um was done without any kind of trained personnel, people basically doing it by braille. Uh, it, something that was considered to be quite en vogue in the early days was something called sense training. It was, uh, de- devised by, um, uh, Segan, who, S-E-G-U-I-N, who had been, uh, one of the people who had worked with the wild boy of Aveyron. And, Uh, The way that it was characterized was it's supposed to be this intense one-on-one interaction where the individual would be presented with objects, for example, that they would feel and touch and taste and smell and learn the words to. And, uh, you know, this very, very intense interpersonal interaction sustained one-on-one. And from the beginning, that was pretty much a failure. Uh, it was sustained throughout the duration of the institution, but, um, it was to be done in combination with a, you know, an intense personal loving set of relationships. So you can imagine, given the conditions of life in Michener, how likely that was gonna be. And then, and then, and then with training, with personnel who really had no training in how to do this and um, And the sort of uh, short staffing that was always chronic in the institution meant that there was just never enough time for that kind of um, that kind of a program to really even if it were effective to really be uh, instituted properly so that uh, was something that w- that limped along for many years uh, for a very small portion of the population, Um, and the idea was that once you finish your sense training, then you would be ready to take on more traditional school-type training and or vocational training. And the school training, um, they actually, you know, Michener, by the time it reached its heyday in the 60s and early 70s, had almost 2,500 residents in it. And, um, they built only in the 60s, the first schoolhouse, and it's a very small building. It has uh, six small classrooms, probably enough to seat maybe 120 kids. And uh, so people, uh, a very elite and very small portion of the children were ever able to attend that school. It um, only went to grade five. And um it was only late in the day that actually certified teachers, uh, staffed the school, uh, and provided that service. And, um, just to sort of talk about the scarcity of resources, uh, one of the workers who I, I interviewed, the same fellow who had administered the IQ tests for his first run after he graduated with a BA from the U of C, Described um, how in the ward that he worked in it was a schoolboy ward and those were the sort of terms that were used and uh, there wasn't a- enough school clothing i.e. street clothing to go around so um, one batch would go in the morning in the clothes and they'd come home take them off, have their lunch and put on the little coveralls or shifts that were available for people in the wards. And and then the next batch would put those clothes on and go for the afternoon. It wasn't a full-time uh, uh, engagement with education. It wasn't one that had uh, a lot of scope to it. A number of the people who I spoke with, particularly the two women who had polio, um, described how they just did grade five again and again until uh, they were old enough to be shifted over to dear home onto the adult side. So that's academic training. Now, as befits vocational training, um, this is a really complicated and uh I think challenging, uh, aspect of Michener's existence, uh, a lot of the vocational training. First of all, Michener was, um, always uh, interested in being self-sustaining or or being at least as financially independent as possible. So, from the very early days forward, and it was only in the in the early 70s that parents um, and children's keep was actually fully covered by the government, but. Uh, parents and families and, and the estates of families were used to pay for the upkeep of children. So, uh, farms were rented out or, uh, uh, taxes were extracted from municipalities or, um, children's clothing, uh, and possessions were sold in order to help with upkeep and maintenance. And another aspect of upkeep and maintenance was this Issue of vocational training. So, uh, children in the institution, uh, the, the institution, by the time it it, it reached its heyday, had. Uh, over 60 60 buildings on the campus, uh, including uh, greenhouses, a shoemaker, a commercial laundry, a um, commercial kitchen, of course, uh, canning facilities, a sewing um, facility where the clothing for everybody uh, on campus was produced. and This was staffed by children and young adults in the institution uh, whose work was um, characterized as training, and hence was not paid, but was but was nevertheless crucial to the running of the institution. In addition, um, people who were considered to be high grade, and this is institutional language I'm using, so this would be people who were uh, who functioned. You know very well, and who were quite bright um were called upon to provide primary care to low grades or people who required feeding and clothing and um having their beds made and and uh you know being moved around so not only not skilled workers but actually you know young young people and inmates in the institution provided care to many of the residents.
0: Okay now I really want to talk about uh, the sterilization aspect because we talked mm. about the passive eugenics of of simply warehousing people in in a institution but this is active eugenics that we're talking about.
1: Right. So, Alberta had a Sexual Sterilization Act, and, and it's it's quite funny, like going back through the Hansard records of the, uh, of the government uh, in those um, years of Michener's establishment and the early years of the eugenic debate, which was stunningly brief, I just would like to say, um, many of the players are the same so we have um we have people from the united farm uh workers uh women of alberta who are concerned about um you know the overbreeding of the wrong kinds of people and social disarray i mean uh a number of the women who were involved in the united farmers of alberta early government were uh were social reformers whose uh, successes gave them positions of having uh, to deal with families that were struggling. So uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, Irene Parlby, who is the first member, uh, minister, uh, in the, in the, um, Alberta government, who is a woman. She is given that posting without portfolio, but it sort of falls to that she, um, becomes responsible for looking after children and families. And, you know, this is a new province and people are trying to homestead and live their lives and, uh, you know, they're dis- they're detached from their home communities and there's quite a bit of social disarray. There's family violence and alcoholism and all kinds of stuff and um, and she's horrified these uh, social reformers are making uh, a move to try and improve society on the one hand by providing care to people with intellectual disabilities uh, and and their motives are kind on the other hand they're worried to death about the p- potential pollution and that would have been the thinking of the time of these people being left free to breed indiscriminately. They're uh, worried about, on the one hand, protecting women from having the burden of having families that are way too large and feeling the bite of poverty, and on the other hand, they're not wanting the state to bear any kind of responsibility for those families. So these multiple kinds of impetus are working at the same time to develop places like Michener and Panoka, uh, which was an institution for, for people with mental illness that opened around the same time. And they're arguing for the Sexual Sterilization Act. So Michener op- opens in 23, the Sexual Sterilization Act passes in 28. It probably could have done so a year earlier, but they had a, an, a, a, an urgent other debate going on in Parliament that delayed the, delayed the passage of the bill. It, goes, it passes completely unopposed. There's very little debate in the House And the idea is that this will help women to reduce their family sizes and reduce the sort of social burden of those stresses. And lo and behold, so it starts as a voluntary sterilization act. And lo and behold, they they put this into place and there is not a stampede of people That's coming in and saying, sterilize me. <laughs> so that is sort of, well, then what to do? And so there are a number of uh, amendments to the act. Uh, in 33, the First Amendment is one that... Um, makes it possible for people to be sterilized if they, um, are people to be sterilized, excuse me, without their consent, if they are de- deemed to be incompetent to grant consent. So uh, this includes a number of people and with subsequent revisions of the act, the net just gets wider. But basically, it is people who are considered to be mentally defective and people who are in a psychotic state. So what ends up happening, and it, this is um, this is worth uh, remembering. My story about the young uh, BA with uh, in psychology who comes in and starts administering IQ tests in his first week of work without any training. Basically, if you have if you have a score on an IQ test that deems you to be mentally defective, which is arbitrarily set at seventy, then your your permission is no longer required you're deemed not competent to give that permission. So what this meant was that people who were in Michener and people who were in Panoka, uh, which is the, the Institute for People with Mental Illness uh, who were deemed to be psychotic, uh, were vulnerable to involuntary sterilization. So the a eugenics board, which met Quarterly across the province from 1928 until the rescinding of the act in 1972, um, passed actually you know some 5,600 cases uh, for sterilization during its operation, but it actually only passed clear, which means passed without any opposition or impediment. 2,400 people who were involuntarily sterilized. It's actually a few less than this. And, and most of those came from Michener.
0: I would just like to point out to anybody who is considering buying this book, uh, first of all, I deeply recommend it. And second of all, it will make you violently angry. So do keep that in mind. Um, so... It should. I just want to point this out. So what this did is is completely eliminated the concept of consent for yes. this this surgery. And it it should be noted that that some people didn't even know that they were sterilized until after mm. leaving Mitchner. Correct?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, the most famous case, or the most probably popularly known cases, that of Leilani Muir, uh, who was the first litigant against the Alberta government uh, to sue for um, wrongful sterilization and also wrongful confinement. So intriguingly enough, like even in that case, there was a recognition of the inappropriateness of the institution. And just, um if I could... uh the inappropriateness of the institution, I think, needs to be um, highlighted in the sense that the government itself has been um, quite conscious that this is a place that needs to close or needed to close for a long time. There was a groundswell of... Uh, understanding that this the, the mental health system system in Alberta was rotten due to a, a number of sort of media exposés in the in the mid 60s and this was sort of at the end of the Manning era, and uh, a weakened kind of regime was getting blows from all sides and so um, there was uh, an effort made at the very end of that uh, to institute an investigation into mental health services across the province with the in the form of the um, it's called popularly the Blair report RW Blair was a psychiatrist appointed by the by the um, government to um, to investigate services and he intriguingly had um had actually served a brief stint on the eugenics board, but he when he wrote his report um he didn't really actually think there was anything wrong with the eugenic act he doesn't mention it too disparagingly in the report, but he's very clear and again and again, and this is a it was a comprehensive two-year-long study and a you know, 150-page document that was produced. Even then, he, he argued that, that PTS, Deer Home, uh, which is what it was called then, or Michener Center as it's known now, should be closed.
0: Now, that's what's so interesting, because that's how these types of stories usually end. Uh, and then the institution closed down. Uh, but Michener actually hasn't closed, correct? That's right. But it has changed significantly.
1: It has uh, the, in the in the seventies and eighties. We began to see, and on the heels of things like the Blair report and huge um, investigative uh, reports, not just in Alberta but across North America, uh, about institutions. So Willowbrook—I don't know if you knew—Geraldo Rivera had been actually a real journalist at some point in his life, and he he did this he did this uh, fantastic um, expose of the Willowbrook School, where he went in with a camera tucked into his shirt and took photographs and it was so shocking and so horrifying to the public mind that that institution uh, was closed immediately amid amid great scandal. And there there were a number of such um, sort of uh, efforts and exposes and controversies, um, in the, in the seventies and, and early eighties and, and, and a move towards deinstitutionalization and communitization began to take place. So, a, a number of the people, uh, the people who I interviewed to a person actually came out of the institution as a result of being around during that deinstitutionalization moment. I'm I'm not actually convinced that they would have been released had had there not been a sort of a sea change. But it took Michener a long, long time to empty itself out. Um, When I was uh, first doing interviews, which the first ones now go back to the late 1990s, um, I... uh, had a, a discussion with uh, the then personal communications uh, uh, individual and she um, she indicated that there was a population of some 350 people still living in the residence you know, at it sort of in the year 2000, um, from an all time high in the late sixties, early seventies of around 2,500. So, you know, it was a slow, uh, a slow progression. It wasn't like the doors were opened and people were were let go. Um, And I, I think that's a, that's actually a, a history that needs to be written, the, um, the deinstitutionalization and the communitization history uh, of Alberta. I, um, I do know people who were part of getting people out of Michener, and when people left the institution, they were so damaged and so made dependent by their life inside the institution that the kinds of um, supports and efforts at reintegration that were required were truly heroic. So people had never chosen their own clothing or their own food or had personal possessions or, um, lived in, you know, in a, with any privacy or under, you know, I mean, so everyday sort of social interactions that would be taken for granted on the outside were completely foreign to them. So they had to be, Taught how to live. They had to. They had to get the old sense training back into being on the outside. Seriously, you mm-hmm.
0: know. Claudia, this is uh, this is definitely a labor of love for you, uh, obviously, but it's uh, an absolutely fantastic book. And thanks very much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I um, I feel honored to have had the opportunity to hear the stories of the people who who lived this.
0: And that was Claudia Malacrida, author of A Special Hell, Institutional Life in Alberta's Eugenic Years. And we've linked to her and her book on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Science for the People, and we'll be right back to talk with Hannah Brown about the recent human embryo modification experiments. Stay tuned. (laughs) Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Desiree Schell, and next on Science for the People, I'm joined by Hannah Brown, PhD, a Robinson Research Institute postdoctoral fellow who recently established the Embryo Metabolo Epigenetics Laboratory at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And we are going to be talking about the world's first genetically modified human embryo. Really good to have you here, Hannah. Great, thank you for having me. So, break this down for us. This is the first time that this has been done?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the first reported time that it's been done. So, you know, we go out, we go ahead and do research, and then we publish it. We it goes to peer review, and we publish it. And this is the first time we've seen any evidence that that anyone has has performed these kinds of experiments on human embryos.
0: And who are these folks who did it?
2: Um, they're a research team from China. So um, they're not particularly well known, um, nor have they been. Well known in this field before, but they they claim to have have done this this first. Um, they're generating the first human embryo.
0: Okay, so now the first human embryo. What what exactly did they do? What does that mean? <laughs>
2: So what they did was they they collaborated or worked with uh, a local IVF clinic, not unlike the the IVF clinics that exist worldwide and they obtained some non-viable embryos and what I mean by non-viable is that these embryos aren't capable of going on to form a pregnancy. So in this case, they had an egg that had been fertilized by two sperms, so it had too much DNA, meaning that it, it wasn't going to be able to go on and form, an em, form a baby. And they got these embryos and they inserted what we call a CRISPR-Cas9 system, but it's kind of like a sat-nav uh, localized pair of molecular scissors that go to a particular region of the DNA and that cut out a region of the DNA. And so in this case, what they wanted to do was try and cut out a piece of the DNA that causes disease, a disease which is known as beta thalassemia. And so they sent these sat-nav guided scissors, molecular scissors to the part of the DNA in the embryo that causes uh, beta thalassemia. And they tried to cut it out and replace it with a non disease uh, non diseased piece of DNA in the hope that they could cure this disease in the embryo.
0: now did it work
2: well that 's a good question I guess it, it, it the, that comes down to what you consider work so they were successfully able to cut out pieces of the DNA, but what they also did was cut out the wrong pieces so it didn't go as well as they'd planned, and they couldn't have predicted that this that this system would not work particularly well in these embryos. So, even though they they tried to cut out they they did they were able to cut out the right piece of DNA. They also made made cuts in the DNA at the wrong places, causing what we would think to be detrimental effects. So now, even that being
0: said, this is revolutionary, correct? It's it's not overstating it to say that this is a tremendous a tremendous moment in history.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the, the both the biological and the ethical the, uh, the ethics fields are really excited and concerned at the same time by this research. It really is a breakthrough considering that the possibility that we are able to you know cut out a piece of DNA that causes, in this case, beta thalassemia or diseases, genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease, which are you know which are really terrible diseases which have really big impacts on the on the healthcare system. So the possibility that we are able to modify these damaged bits of DNA and replace them with healthy bits that would perhaps lead to the, the production of a baby that doesn't have these diseases. Really, you know, I it mean, is, it is a massive breakthrough.
0: But here is where things get sticky. Now you you mentioned ethical concerns, and we'll talk a bit about that later. Um, but let's talk about the safety concerns first. Um, so these off-target effects that I keep reading about what what does that
2: yep. mean? So the off-target effects are the are the inability for them to predict where where in the DNA that these scissors were going to cut and. Meaning, and the off-target suggests that they were not reaching the right target, not not getting the diseased bit of DNA, but but targeting other parts of the DNA, which it shouldn't have been, I guess the healthy, normal parts of the DNA.
0: And what is mosaicism?
2: Ah, oh, mosaicism means that it didn't happen the same in every cell. So while they injected these into many embryos, I think in a number of embryos in the 80s, they didn't get the same effect in every cell. So mosaicism just means that, that the effect wasn't the same over, over all of the cells.
0: So does that mean that this technology would be considered unsafe?
2: Perhaps in this situation, yes. I mean, the technology is being used very widely, not in necessarily in human embryos, but in other human systems. So people have been using it, um, for example, in the stem cell world and also uh, in other animal models of disease to show that they can effectively, um, use these molecular scissors to, to cut out diseased parts of DNA and replace them with healthy parts. So the technology seems to work well and it, it really has been a breakthrough in the, in the gene editing or the, the DNA modifying world in the last, since 2013. But it didn't seem to work particularly well in these human embryos and I guess one of the possibilities is that there was a DNA problem with these embryos, you know, intrinsically from the beginning these embryos had too much DNA, they weren't viable and they weren't healthy, meaning that perhaps this system didn't work so well because there was an underlying problem already which I guess just means that we are probably much further away from being able to use. Perhaps they've ruined, I guess, it for everybody else because it looked like the technology wasn't safe and didn't work very well, but that might just have been an effect of using non-viable embryos. Not that I warrant the work being done in viable embryos.
0: (laughs) So then how would we get to a point that we could test to see if it was safe?
2: Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. I guess at, I'm not particularly over the laws in Canada, although I suspect that they're very much like the laws in Australia, which completely prohibit this kind of research in, in viable human embryos, any kind of genetic modifying. And there is a very strong legislation against doing this, but, there are definitely some countries where the legislation would permit this kind of research to be done and perhaps it needs to be done in viable embryos but under incredibly strict conditions which probably don't, don't result in the embryo going past um, a particular phase and most definitely not being put back into a human. And I guess the, the importance of that is that we just don't know what's going to happen. And I can't imagine that a, that an ethics committee will um, be particularly uh, supportive of this kind of research and it raises all kinds of, of religious concerns and ethical concerns and concerns that we don't even know exist yet based on the fact that we are making these potentially designer babies. Well,
0: and that's definitely the next thing that I want to talk about. So, so what do you think are the ethical concerns here?
2: Um, for me, I think the ethical concerns are that we don't have a safe way to test whether this is effective long term. So. I can't imagine a world where we can justify taking one of these embryos where we took out a disease, um, and putting these embryos back into a woman and having her, you know, gestate this pregnancy for nine months and then not knowing what the outcome for the fetus would be or the, or the offspring, the baby. So this baby could be born with, with all kinds of, um, problems that we just couldn't foresee based on the fact that we really don't understand how this technology works. So, I think that any, that the possibility of, of those kinds of experiments being done are a long way away and we have to know a lot more about the, the safety and the, the, uh, effectiveness of the treatments that we're using. But I, I to me that raises the greatest ethical concern that we, we really don't have a safe way to test it without, without generating a human.
0: Well, and if uh, if we could figure out a way to do that, uh, there, I guess the more inflammatory places on the internet are calling this the start of the new eugenics.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, it, it? We're sort of weighing up the the differences between creating a designer baby and curing these these really awful diseases that that exist, and that not only do we we not have cures for them, for many of them we don't even have effective treatments. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's, it's balancing the, the designer-ness of the, of the generating, you know, perhaps people calling us designing a superior race versus just curing these diseases which cause incredible health burden on, you know, sort of an already burdened healthcare system and, you know, generating people that that would be, that are suffering in the, in the absence of necessity too, I guess.
0: Well, and actually, it, it seems that scientists are fairly divided as to the value of this research, aren't they?
2: Yeah, certainly. I guess even before this research was published, there was sort of a... A whisper or a rumor that it was coming and, and it really did divide the field. It divided the, there were the scientists who are using these kind of technologies for generation of stem cells and, you know, and looking at them in, in other animal models of disease saying that this would harm their research and it would give it a, a negative impact. And then there's the other, the other, um, the embryo field, people excited by the embryo field that think that they, you know, that this is a, a way to cure disease and, and reduce health burden. And I guess you know independent of of whichever whichever side scientists sit on it, what's really important is that you know the the research can only proceed with extreme caution you know there are there are many concerns in many fields of this research and and we have to be really careful moving forward about the types of things that are done well then what would you advise
0: um not only in terms of of where the research should go, but I, I guess regulations is that what we're looking at?
2: yeah certainly. I think regulation is really important, and I think in general, the regulation regarding technologies like this is is pretty good. Certainly in Australia, the legislation is is very high, and this this um research wouldn't be possible. and in fact, in Australia, people who agree to have their embryos used um for research purposes know what the outcome of those experiments are going to be. So we have to inform the Um, give information to the patients donating their, if they choose to donate an embryo, telling them exactly the type of research that, that may be performed with their embryo. And I think if we were telling, um, if we were honest and telling people that this is the type of research that we were doing, that, um, it would, I think, it would probably be very (laughs) difficult to get people to agree to have their embryos used for this purpose. So, we certainly don't do any research like this in Australia. My team doesn't do any research like this, although, the research is certainly fascinating.
0: Well, do you have any idea what these researchers are going to do as a next step for this project?
2: I have no idea. I would like to know. I'm fascinated um, as to whether they think that they can improve the system in non-viable embryos, and I'm not actually certain whether the legislation um, in the region of China that they're in permits the use, the permits the work to be done on on embryos that are viable and embryos that could go on to form a to form a human baby. But it will be fascinating. Certainly they, they perhaps didn't target the best gene to start with. They picked the beta thalassemia piece of DNA because it's very short and it's very well characterized. So I think that's why they chose it. But it also looks like lots of other parts of DNA. So it, it has many similarities to many of the other hemoglobin genes, which I think made it difficult. So perhaps they'll target something, something easier or uh, you know, something with a different way, where they didn't, where they don't have to take out the entire piece of DNA, but they can just make a small, a small change, which we call a, a single base pair change. So perhaps they might try and do some of those things, or they might go on to do some work, some safety and efficacy work in, in animals. So showing that in animal models that they can they can efficiently change out a piece of DNA and, and generate a, a viable pregnancy and a viable offspring, perhaps in, in a pig or in cow, which are the most common large animal species used for this kind of research. And
0: it sounds like that's something that you would advise, maybe stepping away from the human embryos for a moment
2: yeah absolutely so we're definitely this technology is being used um, to generate uh, disease models in in mice and it's also being used to the reverse to fix disease models in mice and it seems to be working fairly effectively so pushing them out into larger animal models which perhaps better better mimic human like pig or like cow um where we can, where those systems are very well characterised and and used frequently. So the pig model is used very frequently for this kind of work, um, mostly looking at um, stem cell work and the generation of potential generation of organs for human use or xenotransplantation. And the cow model is is used frequently for um, it particularly in Australia, the, the breeding capabilities of, of cows are not particularly good anymore. So we're very familiar with these types of technology in cow and we know the expected outcome and we know how to put a cow embryo into culture. So certainly seeing the outcomes of these types of technology in larger animals is is going to be really important and should, in my opinion should definitely happen prior to any more human human work being done.
0: This is fascinating stuff. And uh, Hannah, thank you very much for coming on to explain it. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. And we've linked to Hannah Brown on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And while you're on our website, please do click the links to Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, or to iTunes if you'd like to listen to back episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rachelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. KO. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivalon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell.